if for change to happen, we need to make that space. And that becomes a threat, I think. And that's why the pushback for it, because it's going to take power from those who have been in power forever. Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantelle Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Are you interested in some further reading on social movements and left politics? You should be if you're listening to Survive in Society. Red Pepper is a quarterly magazine and website of politics and culture. It is a space for debate on the left and a home for open-minded socialists. Red Pepper is reader-funded with a sliding-scale subscription model, ensuring its content is available to all. Find a link to Red Pepper magazine in the episode notes. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are really excited today to be joined by Roa Ali, who is a researcher and educator with a growing research profile in race and the cultural industries, access inequality and the politics of minoritised cultural production. Roa is based at the Centre on Dynamics of Ethnicity at the University of Manchester um, and has been there since 2018 and is currently researching racial and ethnic inequality in the creative and cultural industry industries at intersections of COVID-19 and the Black Lives Matter movement in collaboration with Creative Access. Right, can I just say, I don't know if you're, I don't think you'll be able to comment on this because you're working with Creative Access, but I feel like Creative Access is probably like the only good thing that David Cameron like, did whilst he was, <laughs> that's a yeah. coalition initiative, wasn't it? It was funded by the coalition. Yeah, I feel yeah. like it's his only good thing. Sorry, Roa, you probably can't comment on that, but. Um. <laughs> I, can comment, I can comment on how great Creative Access is. Yeah, they're brilliant, aren't they? Oh, yeah. Brilliant. They have really great support structures. They have so many programs in terms of mentoring, but also creating opportunities. And they are talking about kind of bringing positive action. Yes. Teams, not only kind of on the entry level, but also moving to the to the mid to senior kind of management. So they're doing great job. And and you know it was it was amazing working with them on this project and the report that we are going to release. Yeah. Hopefully. So we give you that. We'll give you that DC. No, but that's I, it. I still dislike him. You're still not giving him. No. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> Rawa, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, it's really exciting to have guests like yourself on the show because obviously we're quote unquote an academic podcast, but we do very much embed what we do in the kind of realm of cultural studies. Of we try and sort of be responsive to things that Stuart Hall sort of said and was working mm. on. Like that's the type of things that really inspire us here at Surviving Society. So to have someone like yourself on the show is really great. And we've had obviously your co- some of your colleagues on the show as well before and um, people like Onamik Saha that you're co-author co-researching with as well so yeah it'd be great to just introduce the listeners a little bit to a little bit about your work and why you got into doing this yeah thank you so much for having me I'm so excited to be part of Surviving Society podcast <laughs> and it's so hard to follow on examples like Onamik Saha you know he's one of the great minds out there and to be honest you know everybody who's been in your podcast it's uh, it's almost like the bible really of looking into uh, kind of race and inequality so thank oh, you oh okay <laughs> okay <laughs> and thank you for that introduction yeah this is kind of the area that are working and really interested in, um, which is the production of culture. And there has been a shift between kind of looking at representational politics in culture. So, for example, what a cultural product like a a text or a film, you know, how do uh, representations of race, you know, what are they, how problematic are they, you know, are they good enough or not good enough, to a move pioneered by by Herman Gray and Onamik Saha into kind of looking at the process of cultural production where we think that the the power uh, is, you know, it's, it's, how how does race get made in that process mm. and what power is at play there in, in terms of institutional power, a kind of branding and promotion and for me kind of this, this area is really exciting but it also holds a lot of power because what eventually gets produced or what we eventually see on screen on here on a radio or in, in the, in the theatre, that's the final product. We, we don't know how it came 
to get there and you know who makes those decisions who green lights something so I'm, I'm i'm really kind of interested in this area i'm interested in the politics of it of cultural production um and also the role of institutions um within it and particularly kind of uh, lately i've been focusing on on diversity and diversity strategies um and kind of trying to problematize those a little bit and see why hasn't it worked for over 20 years now um what can we do differently this is where i am at the moment it all starts really you know you you quoted stuart hall it, it's you know he's, he's he's the father of all of this and i'm still inspired motivated everything he he said and, and wrote about and that's kind of coming to why the cultural sector matter and why diversity and ethnic inequality matter within that. So Roa, when we're talking about cultural sector and in particular we're thinking about how we as academics engage in it and let's let's say what that is in terms of cultural studies, music, film, TV, theatre, publishing, radio, podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, so it it is important that, I mean... One thing when you were talking, Roa, I was just thinking about how we always say we're the culture, but like we don't have any money. <laughs> As in, like, just thinking about Roa talking about processes, it may automatically made me think about black cultural production, but it also made me think about class, and it also made me think about like how often like our culture or our di- our very fluid, interchangeable dynamic black diasporic culture is is used i don't mean onomic i feel like onomic would drag me here because i want i was going to say appropriated onomic's a bit funny about appropriation but i think it depends what context you're talking about yeah so i think you can talk about appropriation in terms of like a corporate sense of appropriation so how say for example nike appropriated black lives matter to kind of make a kind of commercial statement such a piss take raj can you give us some of the stats to why this stuff matters yeah, before we do that, because what you were, you know, what you were discussing is really, really important, and it's it kind of it, it falling within the idea of appropriation and commodification, and mm. what does that mean, mm-hmm. um, and and where Adamic Salha here uh, kind of has is both critical but also brings a new perspective to it and and the fact that um and how uh Onimic kind of puts it he understands it as commodification as a form of racial governmentality okay so if we go back to uh, uh to commodification and what it means um and and that's following from let's say bell hooks who said race is used as a spice in cultural production yep. to kind of spice up the lives and imaginations of rest in power uh, bell hooks absolute legend yeah yeah um but also because then what happens as well is by commodifying and mainstreaming racial cultural products what happens is sometimes that their res- re- resistive politics gets diffused and that's where the trap that we we want to avoid and that's where Onimek here comes and says actually we don't want to be fatalistic in saying that everything that is appropriated and commodified can turn into can kind of lose its 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 resistance and but let's let's focus and study on on those processes of cultural production so the branding the promotion uh putting something in a genre yeah, I Let's see how these are racialized. I think that's important, especially in black culture products. So, for example, hip hop yeah. and drill and grime, how these kind of culture products are put together and organized. So, for example, my cousin was in Roll Deep and their first album, it's a, it's a collective or what? I think 10 black boys, but the mm. corporation chose to not put put any of them on any of the marketing. So they they weren't allowed to put them, even in the video, they're cartoons. So they would not represent young black males in a positive light. Instead, they chose to represent them as demons, as actual demons. I remember. (laughs) As actual demons and monsters. I'm gonna leave Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So this is it. What, What interests me can you see that George yeah. is just showing Roa the picture of what, what what they did to Roll Deep? Yeah, it's, it's so, so, so. What interests me is who's in that room. So when I white people. So when I'm looking at, <laughs> so, but but what interests right? Not only just white people, but so when you're looking at when something's getting processed as a corporation, it goes through several different groups. At, at no point is anyone saying, "Hang on a minute, that's a bit that's a bit funny." 
at all stages of all these kind of culture productions, everyone's just saying yes. So we get movies like Avatar, which commodify and commercialize the the uh, colonization colonization process mm-hmm. and imperialism and present it as myth. So now reality is presented as myth, which creates a whole new problem. And I'm like, where does <gasps> where does this end? Oh my god, that's just blowing my mind, bro. This is what I do on a rest. This is this he. You need like we need to take T's phone off him. Like this is too. I mean, as in like th- that is very profound, and that has just blown my mind. But equally, like, are you all right? No. <laughs> I mean, exactly, exactly. I mean, these these processes happen in 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 front of our eyes, and it's it's. You, how do we stop that? And and how? Or who do we talk to? You know, who is behind those decisions? And they're often invisible. They're often behind stage. You can't reach them. And and it's it's almost like you know this kind of uh, um, omnipresent power that you can't see but it kind of decides all those representations and then those representations have real world effect if i see it if i see another if i see another advert with a mixed race family (laughs) making the making the breakfast or buying furniture i'm gonna throw my tv out there but but you know what the madness is right and obviously we talk about diversity a lot and these processes i watched marvel's eternals right and so but what's what's quite interesting is in the movie they play to die straight for diversity so you have female characters you have a chinese character you have a black character as main leads but however if you look in the background they show in the past ancient mesopotamia is full of white people every country they go to iraq is full of white people in the past so they they play to diversity from what you can see but in the background it's still all white it's just so tokenistic isn't it yeah it's it's insane this is all kind of part of yeah. part of what I do, and you know, it's it's a it's a public discussion. It's that's what culture is. It's you and me, and all the people that we interview, and mm. um, and that's where we get there. And I think I think kind of understanding or 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 having those questions. T. I mean, you know, that's how we get the power back. Mm-hmm. And we're like, you know, we know what you're doing. We know you're doing. You can't fool us. Um, it's really interesting, kind of, if we think about that uh, promotion. I actually wanted to ask a question about how they responded to that. How was their response to that promotion and packaging um, what, of the, of that movie? Of the yeah, no, no, of the of the oh, album. Oh, of my cousin. Yeah. See, this is interesting, Ro. So yeah. when I speak to them about it, and I, I ask them, they're almost unaware. So I said, like, mm. are you in politics? They say we don't do politics. I said. But you, you are. When you're, you're talking about yeah. about this representation, that's political. You're you understand that you're not being represented. So they, they understand it as such, but do not do not encounter it as such. But so they understand something's gone wrong, but do not respond in that way. So they just say they're happy on on a kind of more material level to get their money and it's they've got a record deal and they can pursue some kind of materialism which matches the scene that they're in. I have a theory that I'm developing. It's still kind of, um, it's it's not ready. It needs it needs a lot of work. But I'm developing this theory. Are you sure you want to say it? Because the academics are gangsters hey, listen, and they'll listen, take they'll it. it. They'll, they'll steal it. They'll steal it. We've got a lot of listeners on here. You sure you want to share it? <laughs> I know. It came first in, in the Surviving Society podcast. So it's patent. Um, <laughs> it's, it's copyright infringement. But I'm, I'm working on it in, in a sense of looking at pragmatism, a survival strategy. Perhaps they were quite aware of what was happening. They were quite aware of the commodification that is happening and misrepresentation and representation in negative and pernicious kind of ways. But they've taken this or they've tried to make this silent or unacknowledge it as a way of surviving because how else would you survive in the industry? It's either you work in the fringes or you kind of negotiate. There are, of course, red lines. It's kind of that negotiation, it's that dance in the institution, mm-hmm. outside the institution, and creating your own red lines. Robot. And I think crossing those red lines is kind of the difference between resistance and selling out. But I think there is always that kind of negotiation, part and parcel of surviving, you know, as an ethnically diverse person, as a black, Asian or ethnically diverse person in the cultural industry. And I'm really interested in in those and, you know, in, in pragmatism that 
Um, but as I said, it's still developing. No, Robert, I would 100% agree. But it's the idea now, when in this, in this negotiation, this dance, that we, this, this idea of pragmatism, it, it needs to be reformulated for this new medium that we're in. But yeah. I would also like, I'm not dis- uh, discrediting the fact that this is something you're working on, Roa, but I feel like what you're saying is also probably inspired by thinking about Du Bois and double consciousness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. but actually, like bringing in Toni Morrison here, who reminds us that double consciousness is not a state of being, it's a state of adapting and surviving. So mm-hmm. becoming aware of yourself and how others see you. That is a that is a process of being and a process of adapting to white supremacy. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not who I am as a person. It's something that I have to do in order to be. So the kind of that pragmatism coming back to yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. exactly. I mean, thank you so much. I mean, no idea is is, is amazing. No, no, no. And I just I just wanted to sort of yeah bring it back well, for the no, for the you. for the sociologists in the room. Mm. Thank you. I mean, and and this is kind of informing informing kind of my thinking about it. And and I, but why I I want to kind of um, delve a bit deeper into it in the cultural industries, in particular, in those processes mm. and in those institutional spaces. We'll see. We'll, we'll see what. what <laughs> no, but Robert, I think it's. But I think I think that we are talking about. Obviously, we're talking about the specifics of the cultural industries. But I do think this does relate to wider issues of yeah. racialization and racism. Yeah. And just thinking about Tiso talking about his cousin kind of um not really not not necessarily understanding but their kind of reaction to the cap them being caricatured and that kind of coming back to thinking about how negatively racialized people often or at times can't haven't got the space because of adapting so much to whiteness to not only acknowledge but also have a, a realization of what is actually happening to them and we've spoken about this before on the show about how like in my research talking about black people that have lived or been raised in predominantly white places like you you start to make excuses for what you have experienced and in some cases you say that it's not racist so if Tiso is going to his cousin like that's racist what they did to you he'd probably be like oh no 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 what what racist like do you know what i mean like it's listen, listen, go on. it's like what like you mentioned in your report robert like and we were talking about this earlier at certain points you re- we, we spent so long adapting to it that when you actually confront it you look back and you see the self-hate yeah you look back and you can feel in it. the so, internalization so yeah. for me for example in my kind of journey through the system at one point now i you just check out I don't want to put up with that or feel be around that. Yeah. Because you spent so long negotiating that compromising yourself. So when you look back, in my case, disgust. You look back and you're thinking, bro, I did that. Mm. I was willing to ignore all that. And you do it because at that time it's you're being pragmatic. I, I need a promotion. I need the money. I need this. As you get older, you start draw, you start making those arbitrary lines, and you're thinking, well, I'm not willing to put up with that anymore. Mm. Part on, you know, thank you both so much. So we actually in our interviews i haven't kind of introduced the project properly mm-hmm. but i will mm-hmm. um in a, in, a, in a minute but one of the things that stood out for us we were interviewing ethnically diverse um cultural workers and creatives some of the questions uh, were about racism the, the racism that they experienced and it was really interesting so they were really hesitant to name racism as the source of discrimination. Yeah. Despite many examples um, and stories which suggested that they had personally experienced racism at work. And sometimes it's overt and sometimes it's covert. I mean, mostly it's covert mm. nowadays. Um, they expressed uncertainty about what constitutes racism. And it's because of that you take so much in like it, this is so much part of the daily experience mm-hmm. that you kind of is it though is it though and you start questioning yourself and mm-hmm. and and kind of and also it's a, it's a, a form of self-preservation because you don't want to admit that you have been racialized and that you have been discriminated against based on your race so you kind of protect yourself by saying well actually no it's not it, that's not racism um and also to, to maybe exercise some agency to have that power. So that was really interesting for us, you know, as a first step of acknowledging uh, racism and racist incidents. When you are struggling to acknowledge that, you know, it says about much deeper problems in the industry. Um, there were also concerns of being a troublemaker 
when calling out racism? Do I say something? Or, well, if I said something, then I'd be confirming the stereotype of being loud and aggressive. Or I will have the reputation of being a troublemaker. And because the cultural industry is so much based on who knows who and you know opportunities kind of depend so much on networking and word of mouth having a reputation of being a troublemaker means that you're not going to get a job potentially Rowan, this is all really this is all really important stuff and it comes back to as well a paper that i think i've brought up before on the show by stuart hall from the 90s it's called like the whites they're right it's a paper which is about cultural studies and the cultural sector. But Stuart Hall basically said in the early 90s that this internalisation, particularly of black creatives um, and our black, subje- uh, black subjectivities, how we live and how we engage in these processes and the, inter- and, sorry, and the consequences being that internalisation is one of the most understudied aspects of the racialization of life as in like what you're talking about Stuart Hall was saying years ago we need to look at the impact of this on a black sense of self we need to look at the impact of this because it is it's having a profound effect and they actually we haven't got that much research on what the impact on the black sense of self this start what what the impact is if you look at cultural products uh, as in the, what you're seeing in front of you you can see the effects yeah people hive themselves off for example we are in a black podcast right yeah people hive themselves and with the kind of the with the kind of diffuse nature of of the current of modern multimedia everyone's gone on into their own little pockets and which the mainstream have now started to mine for bits of bits for bits and pieces mm. but everyone's hived themselves off because they don't want to be around that kind of pressure anymore and you can see it, but I guess we haven't got the theory that lies behind it, but you can yeah. see it in, 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 in actuality. I think you're right, T. So that's sort of the consequences on a practical level. Mm. But I think one of the things that Stuart Hall was drawing on is, what does this mean from our well-being as a people, that we are constantly engaging madness. in? Madness. madness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were limited limited studies uh, that I've encountered um, in, the, in the States. I can't remember um, names, but... Um, where actually there was a study about the the impact of this internalized racism yeah. on the, the mental health and well-being. I want to kind of go back just to, yeah. to the idea of racism and because um, even when they they were hesitant to name racism in the survey, and we can talk about in a bit uh, about the survey and what it kind of what entailed. But in the survey, we had a thirty-seven percent of all ethnically diverse respondents who agreed that their careers had been affected by discrimination and only 17 percent disagreed so if you kind of uh, also if you also kind of keep in mind those who didn't neither disagreed or disagreed the majority actually kind of acknowledged racism in one form or another Um, and what was really interested as well is we we asked about religious discrimination and for the majority uh, of ethnically diverse creatives and cultural workers that didn't really come up but 33 percent of muslim respondents said that they've experienced Mm. religious discrimination and that was kind of the highest categories in in terms of the um, the, the sample. Well, one of the things that Britain does best is, is Islamophobia, <laughs> and it's just so embedded. That this doesn't surprise me. If you were, if you got the same question about discrimination and religion, and you was in Northern Ireland, for example, I guess you would get a higher incidence talking about uh, sectarian discrimination. But I think religion also becomes racialized, specifically <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, in Muslim circles. And, and you know, we have to acknowledge that Islamophobia is a Western-wide kind of problem. <laughs> yeah. Not just the West, actually. So, you know, it is a big problem. But um, but it can also be racialized, I think, uh, within, mm. you know, within discourses of, of race. And, yeah. and it compounds the issue as well. Definitely, Ra. So do we want to do this, some of the stats and then do you want to introduce the, the work that you guys have been doing on COVID-19? Yeah, sure. Thank you. So, um, yeah, so we we were working on a project at the Centre on Dynamics of Ethnicity, um, and and the project was looking at the impact of COVID and Black Lives Matter on ethnic inequality 
in the culture and creative industries, um, led by uh, Professor Bridget Byrne, uh, who is a professor of sociology at the University of Manchester. Pick up Bridget Byrne, who she was one of my PhD examiners. Yeah, <laughs> Bridget and um, and Dr. Onimek Saha uh, in Goldsmith, um, and it was uh, it was run in partnership with Creative Access as well. We surveyed fourteen hundred respondents of those. 724 were ethnically diverse and we also interviewed uh, 45 individuals and we asked them questions about COVID, about the impact of COVID on job security, on their financial well-being and their mental health, but also how you know, what is the impact of Black Lives Matter? We kind of had the hypothesis that maybe Black Lives Matter could potentially uh, uh, kind of mitigate some of the, um, the, the the impact of COVID on efforts of diversity. Maybe in the first few months. Never. 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 Yeah. Never. No, no they yeah. don't care. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the stats didn't kind of... I mean, I think it was a hope more than a hypothesis. Mm. It was a hope, you know. Could it, could it potentially kind of... How would it affect attempts to diversify the, the sector? That happened in kind of last year. And now we have a, a report, an industry-wide report, in partnership with um, Creative Access, that hopefully is going to come sometime in February. And so these stats are based on, on, on that report. What the survey data showed us is that COVID and the subsequent lockdown had a tangible and a worrying impact on job and financial security for the ethnically diverse individuals working in uh, the creative industries. So we had 48% who expressed that they are becoming financially unstable or need immediate assistance. And we had 70% who were worried about their job security. We noticed that the, the pandemic have led to a concerning impact on the migration of ethnically diverse talent within and outside the creative and cultural industries. 48% said that their primary source of income changed during the pandemic. And 30% of those respondents said that they have left creative and cultural sector. We have the percentage of people who were in employment at the start of the pandemic fell by 29%. And that's quite quite a lot by the end of the first lockdown. So almost 30% kind of lost their jobs. It's, um, like, the it's like the great reset, as in like, everything's just going to go back to how it was. I, reality's changed, right? But no one's quite sure how it's changed just yet. And no one wants to admit it's changed. So people are trying to say, we want to get back to normal, but we know we know time travel is impossible right we can never it's go never back. Going back so but no one's willing to say stuff has changed and how do we readjust because right now it's that readjustment to whatever this thing is at the moment is the problem if diversity was and diversity inclusion was always an issue right now the issue is still there but i don't know how this how it's taking shape in 2020 going forward the shape of it's changed right and this is a problem as sociologists as people who look at things like the things we look at are dynamic and constantly evolving. So trying to pin down what's happened or how people feel about it, we don't, it's very hard. It's a moving target, right? Absolutely. And I, I think, I think that uncertainty is kind of, you know, it's everywhere. And, it, and, and we need to acknowledge here that the, the, the impact of COVID on the cultural industry in general is, is massive. So whether you're white or ethnically diverse, but what we want to emphasize here is that although these findings are consistent with the current state of job losses across the cultural and creative industries, it is really worrying development for diversity efforts in the sector, considering that there is already an underrepresentation of ethnically diverse groups in the sector. So, you know, we, we have here an added problem. And also in our interviews, uh, we had few interviewees saying um, that when, you know, job cuts came around, it was, it, it was you know, the, the ethnically diverse who were first to go. Um, and, and, you know, why? 
but also it it has to deal of where they are in the in the seniority chain and you know most and this is what the stats sometimes doesn't tell you is um a lot of the ethnically diverse cultural workers and 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 creators who are working in the industry you know they're not high up they're in the front uh front of the house uh, kind of entry levels um you know, the, the higher you go up, the more that the percentage really diminishes and gets smaller. And that's a problem. So when they want to lay people off, uh, we don't need a front of house staff. And, you know, who is there? We don't need, you know. So the issue is a problem. And then we have Black Lives Matter and, you know, institutions saying, oh, well, you know, we want to center diversity and representation and we're going to take actions. And that, of course, doesn't translate so well uh, in terms of policies, in terms of actions. No black person wants to be, especially in a group where we talk about getting someone on your merits to be that diversity higher, because that's how it's kind of played out in the public space, that you're put there because you're black or you're a woman or you're disabled or you're gay or whatever it is, not because of you. And then the person strikes back and say, I want to be viewed as a competent person. And so what everyone's doing is avoiding the elephant in the room there's structural issues there that need to be addressed but no one's talking about it mm-hmm. everyone reflects it as an individualized problem but I, have i said this on the show Go when on. i got my obviously I, i'm very 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 lucky i have a fellowship for a couple of years yeah. um at oxford but someone said to me did i get my job because of blm yeah, the standard. <laughs> and I said, do you know what? I said, it's such a, obviously it's so rude. I was like, maybe. Yeah, you should say yes. And what? No, no, no. In all seriousness, though, it's a fucking madness. Yeah. No, this is all so serious. And thank you so much for kind of bringing it up. Because yeah. This is, you know, this kept uh, coming up in the interviews. It's like, I don't want to be a diversity hire. But here is the thing. You're not going to get into these places until uh, unless you are really qualified. So, for example, Creative Access. Creative Access has a really, really stringent um, kind of recruitment process before. So they choose their own candidates, yeah. the pool that they have. And, and, and these are cream of the top. Yeah. Before you get onto the next level, these people are really competent mm. and they know their stuff and and they are, you know, they they are better than anyone. The fact that there are so many few places for 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 black Asian and ethnically diverse people um makes you want to take that diversity uh a position, but it's it's the institutions, it's the the the, the culture that kind of devalue uh, that mm-hmm. uh, so it's it's a problem with the with the structure. Not actually, most of those diversity higher kind of are the best in their uh, in their class and and you know their qualifications and their expertise is excellent. I feel like whether it's in academia or the cultural sector, institutions more broadly, that we are having a kind of version of like affirmative action that I think was kind of happening prior to BLM that was perhaps sped up because of BLM it's messy it's not direct and there's a lot of pushback what you have is with a kind of like we spoke earlier it's a 20 year long process of the diversity initiative yeah and essentially I'm going to say I'm going to put I'm going to say out there I'm going to say it's like window dressing because the structure remains the same yeah and we talk about the same things and we're 20 years on so the question is what do we do? And I, I think we spoke about on a, on, a, on a previous podcast. Our parents' generation thought that they would give up on the kind of protests and say, if we can get our kids into the system, that they will change it. But BLM showed that these promises haven't been kept, and ones that ha- and the diversity hires that have got in there, they've become part of the establishment, and they and they've pulled up that drawbridge, and so we're back at square one again. Where do we find these spaces? <coughs> Just to say as well, um, not trying to make compa- it's very different context, history and space in terms of thinking I said about affirmative action in the US and Britain, it's very different. Um, but one, I would like to to not disagree with you, T, but sort of say that provocation. perhaps... Provocation. Yeah, a provocation, yeah, provocation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go, it's a provocation. <laughs> a, my provocation is that, and thinking about Roa's work as well and the cultural sector... Mm. Think about TV, think about film, also think about academia. There has been some good things that have happened 
in turn, like there has this pockets of good things that are not just about representation that are reparative. I listen. I agree with you. I what I'm talking about is still again. It's a general pitch, but I'm talking about the structures. Are yeah, still the same. And I guess twenty years on, what I'm trying to say is. We need to have a, a, a serious talk about what we are going to do to change these yeah. structures what for do once. We want? Because we've done all the kind of window dressing or things around the edges. And it takes, and people, the people are doing it, it's a great sacrifice to them. Sometimes their family life, their kind of mental health. We've done all that. So what we need from institutions is to kind of, I don't know how. Reparation. Reparative. Reparative kind of reparative change. Not even even reparative justice because it's a very subjective thing, justice. Reparative change. So, what can you do to give me that can be measured measured metrically? Yeah. I guess. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, these are exactly the the questions that we have been kind of looking at because we looked uh, in a previous project at Code as well. We looked at. Uh, diversity within institutions um, and you know how the institutional practices kind of either mitigate or reproduce um, ethnic inequality um, and you know there is there is an article that is hopefully yeah I don't want to put a date on it but it's it's in review now um, that we kind of particularly talk about this issue of of diversity how diversity itself becomes commodified and 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 then um and then what the problems are with diversity policy um and you know the 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 ethnically diverse people kind of being fetishized within the institutions itself and having that burden of representation um so we we're going to you know, these these are all part of the questions. But for example, some of the things that we found out, you know, and, and these are not just our finding, but also depends on a lot of research um, that a lot of great people have been uh, doing as well. So, you know, these uh, initiatives are not supported and are not made part of the bigger institution. Mm. They, they don't have that long-term uh, uh, kind of efficacy or uh, capacity building so so what happens is you know because they they keep being uh the, the diversity opportunity keep being in kind of entry stages this cohort keeps being stuck in these uh in these positions and it's very hard to progress um in in those institutions it's very hard and that's why you know with the stats that's why it's it's much less uh, the higher up that you go um and like a radical you know solution is like well you need to make play is space you know white people need to make space in those institutions give me your job give me your job Wait, so <laughs> and so so what you see so when an institution does do this right and they try to make that space because it's such an abrupt shock. It seems tokenistic. So the pushback from the right are saying, for example, obviously you, we look at the cultural industry's outputs to kind of see as a measure where they are, right? So another kind of popular TV show, Star Trek Discovery. Now in its most recent season, there is no white males in this in this whole thing. Everyone is either, the main, the main character is a black female and a black lead, the, the only white man in it is a white gay man. There is no white male. The only white male is the villain. Good. So, so but, but when but when they see it, because it could have changed for them, because it changed for people who are not on to, into diversity, it seems so abrupt. It seems forced, as in the powers that are be are pushing stuff onto them. And this has been the pushback, right? The pushback from the right is, you're forcing diversity on me. You're forcing change. And so on a bigger scale, this is like, for example, on the biggest, this feeds into the narrative of the Great Replacement. It, it feels like powers that be are forcing these changes on me to force out white people to threaten us. So we feel, so now white people have gone from being the oppressors to the victims of this forced change. This is what happens when institutions do not take the kind of overarching reach of diversity. It becomes something where now it's a threat to them. It reflects that narrative, like I said, it reflects the narrative from being oppressor, now they become victims and that, to us, sounds ridiculous, right? Yeah. Well, and obviously it's ridiculous, but like it's something that they're able to... That's the other side of it, isn't it? That's the other side of making um, arguments for inclusivity. Are these far-right people who 
um, pro- project notions of the great replacement and it's so easy for them to grab onto tv film music because it's something that everyone is kind like everyone engages with yeah. so it's easy for them to say look what they're doing look what they're doing and look what they're taking away from us when we're talking about these things so i try to kind of try to think how it affects people in their day-to-day so speaking to my friends for example what one of the big things and we spoke about it years ago when my friends are saying t they're pushing um uh, same-sex marriages and all that on us. They're, they're pushing it on us, right? And I said, well, yeah. I, I said, that's true. That There are more uh, gay couples on TV. I said, just like in the 80s, there were more black people. But I said, you have to start from somewhere. So I said, the powers that be will do that. And it, it will seem jarring. But after all, it becomes normal. But you have to start from somewhere. Mm. But also, they, they have the choice. I mean, you can watch something or you don't have to watch it. You I know, know but people like complaining. Yeah. People do like complaining. Um, t- George has pointed at Tiso. Not that Tiso would ever complain about same-sex people or same um, gender relationships on um, TV shows. But I think that I think we also have to remember the powers that be don't decide to do diversity. They get fucking pressure from those that are on the margins to say, look, we need this incl- inclusivity. So it's not that they've suddenly decided it's because pressure has come. They'd, they'd keep things the same. Do, do you know what? I don't think it's pressure. It's just at, at the moment, I think it's purely, I think capitalism in its nature is purely pragmatic and it will drop bits as in, as and when it needs to yeah. to keep itself present, to keep itself in order. So for example, Black Lives Matter happened as a big pushback. We had black squares for what, what three months? <laughs> <laughs> so 2022, where are we now? Essentially back in the same spot, right? Like, <laughs> so madness. Sorry, it's not funny. Um, because that was the other uh, line of inquiry that we wanted to to, to see in, in, you know, what is the impact of Black Lives Matter? You know, we, we, we saw, I mean, it was a shock to the system in terms of uh, kind of the amount of at least performativity that was happening, right? There was a lot of performativity in in solidarity with the Black Lives uh, Matter uh, protests and, and movement. And that was good to see, right? You know, we even in, in a performative way, even those black squares, you know, seeing them everywhere, it, it was it was good to have that acknowledgement no Rawa sorry I've got to disagree with you it really wound me up no I get what I can I can I can hear your argument but I'm, I'm my provocation it, it annoyed me all for me Black Lives Matter all it did is increase the labour of me saying stuff I've said to people already yeah. and yeah. they're saying to me oh, but really and I'm like whatever what I tried to say at the time and I think we had it on podcast was I think Black Lives Matter was important for white English people and white people around the world to understand what 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 there's hundred years of worth of literature about. Yeah. What I think for black what was important for black people was for as an opportunity for us to start looking at that internal racism that we spoke yeah, about yeah, earlier. Yeah. Yeah, to look definitely. at how this thing has affected me internally. So for example, why young black families as growing up, why my mum never really spoke to me openly about race when she clearly was and clearly experienced racism on a, on a daily basis, mm. both over and covert. But she she learned that passed down from her parents. No one really spoke mm. about it. Mm. And even, it? even though we would encounter it, just like how, well, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I hear you. So I guess my our provocation is, Roa, that the cultural industries or the black squareism that happened, um, BLM, is kind of a red herring. The things that I think the things that we think were probably the most progressive were the more kind of dialogical, um, like ways of being and understanding one sense of self was, was very profound and remained a powerful thing that happened. Black squares. No, I, I, I agree. But my, my point there was, is that there was uh, much more accountability happening. So with all the statements, for example, that, that were coming on um can we say like, that's account can we say that's accountability though by making no, no, statements no, no, yeah no, no, no pressure not accountability okay pressure Pre- cool yeah pressure yeah pressure agreed public, public pressure and i'm gonna kind of follow up because in the end we don't actually know if it had any tangible yes actionable impact yes but i want to say just and this is kind of coming from the interviews as well not not just um kind of my own understanding of it but it's it's so, so there was pressure so if if you know a big institution or even a small institution didn't put up uh, a statement i'm saying even if in its 
performative mm. way. We'd be like, okay, why haven't you done that? We know it's not going to lead anyway, but at least you need to acknowledge. And and we know, you know, a lot of the statements were kind of empty in the sense that they didn't bring any accountability. Uh, we know few uh, that had kind of actions and mm. and uh, targets. So. Um, for example, increasing representation within the institution, doing this and that, and I think that was that was productive. From the the interviewees who actually work in the creative um, industry, what they said they said that Black Lives Matter played a key role in bringing about awareness about issues around race, yeah. ethnicity. As you said opening up that conversation, yes. acknowledging that races exist and that we have to talk about racism um so that that was that was good not in all spaces not in all spaces um can i ask a question question, just coming back to the point you said about the pressure and thinking about what some of the interviewees said do you think that in terms of the statements and in terms of the black squares etc that um institutions or parts of the sector put up for me particularly think about conversations that we've had on the show I would prefer it if they, the ones that don't aren't actually going to do anything didn't put the square up just so we know, okay, yes, yeah, they're racist. As it, do you know what I mean? Like, because it became a symbolism, losing Alana Lenton here, of racism and not racism, it kind of allows... Um, do, do you see what I'm trying to say, T? Like, no, it would I, be better... Well, I, I guess... I, I, that's, I, that's what I'm going to kind of say. Kind of an unintended consequence of BLM has been the kind of the polarisation. It's increasing polarisation, the binarization of, of this of these kind of discussions, right? For example, I guess the US is probably the best example of this kind of polarisation. So in the cases where you have these kind of high-profile high legal cases in going through the courts at the moment, where if a black defendant's in there and he gets off or on there's a kind of question did BLM impact that thing will be or if a white guy gets off did BLM impact there's a polarisation around these things and it it kind of creates a tension between things of justice fairness meritocracy and all those things that we think are positive things that should be in action but these things create a tension or cast doubt over these things think about like cultural production and global capitalism more broadly like let's think about going back to nike again they're able to do a statement no actually i'm not about h&m they're able to do a statement about like blm they're able to put a black square they're able to put like what they're going to do so like the garments came about the garment industry and then they've got like sweatshops where they're paying ki- like do you know what i mean like you're allowed there was a the, that that tension mm we weren't able to because we're always operating in kind of survival mode as ethnic diverse people that are trying to do cultural production like these tensions were so, uh, uh, remained so hard to grapple with it's like actually like what do we want i guess what do we want i, I don't know i i think i guess how serious are people about these how serious yeah, that's it it involves to do anything involves a sacrifice right so i was just kind of talking uh, looking for example people talk about the environment but everyone drives uh, like lots of people driving four wheel big trucks right yeah, yeah, yeah so how much do you really care what sacrifice you're gonna have to sacrifice something yeah exactly exactly and and so it leads back to power it, it, <laughs> yeah it goes back to making space and it goes back to, you know, and, and that becomes a threat on white privilege and white fragility is in action mm. then. Because if, if, you know, that's what's happening and that's that the pushback is because you are going to take my place because that's the only kind of form of uh, repatriation that could be, you know, if for change to happen, we need to make that space and that becomes a threat. I think and that's why the pushback for it because it's going to take power from those who have been in power forever that's where that that tension is coming back to so in the interviews kind of on the black lives matter um and and kind of the effect so they 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 felt our interviewees you know there was a fatigue of their statement you know it's like i'm getting annoyed exactly what what uh what you guys said in in there was a fatigue it's another statement it's another performative Mm. or as uh, uh, Sarah Ahmed says non-performative as in it, a follow through with an action even though they've acknowledged that some role are opening up in the industry uh, to ethnically diverse people particularly kind of directly after uh, the protest um, this seems like a diversity on demand 
model, which is what happens throughout history. You know, it happened in the States um, back in the civil rights. And, and in it. so you, you have like that moment of, of kind of, oh, okay, we're, we're going to put some schemes in, you know, a few, three months. And then it kind of the conversation uh, dials down um, a little bit. So they felt it was diversity on demand or, uh, or, can be seen as tokenistic uh, and that the structural barriers still exist and haven't been addressed. But also, you know, there were questions about, you know, identity, uh, identity politics and and that the BLM or uh, uh, kind of questions about it may even reproduce some form of othering within the industry. So including that of black people. Um, and also what we found, we heard that from so many of our interviewees is that they the burden of representation increased tenfold so in the institution we're like we're giving you agency we're giving you power for the one black person for example in the institution that they could find and then they have to deal with all the diversity and questions of race and questions of racism and you know the emotional and physical labor um and and mental labor that that requires is just um immense to come back to the stats um, and and that what the survey told us um, that there was limited evidence of of you know that uh, kind of uptake of the BLM uh, being put swiftly into action. Only seventeen percent um, of ethnically diverse respondents agreed that more unpaid or voluntary opportunities had become available and uh, as a response to BLM and only 14% agreed that more paid opportunities had become available. So the numbers are, are, are not great, but we still don't know for sure. Um, but I would say it's just for the moment, it's uncertain what kind of impact it has at all. And, and what is the long-term impact of, yeah. of Black Lives Matter? Yeah. yeah. On the cultural industry, the zoomification yeah. or team yeah. teamsification yeah, like academia. That. That's mine, <laughs> academics. That's mine. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, just uh, following up on this and yeah. kind of ending with that. I think, I mean, the impact of COVID. Why? Why we are concerned is that because of that migration of of um, eth- ethnically diverse talent. I mean, and this it took a long time to get these people in there in the first place. So the fact that they have moved from the cultural industries is worrying for us and there's also um some other stats is is kind of uh, we found out that people who are entering into um the, the the industry uh we have a high percentage who people trying but are not able because of covid so that com- ba- uh, compounded so both uh not being able to get a job in the cultural creative industries for ethnically diverse uh, uh workers cultural workers and creatives as well as um, people leaving the industry, ethnically diverse people leaving the industry, that is worrying for us. You know, mm. the question is what do, what do we have to do about it later? And that we have to think about that and we have to do something about it. That's great. Rawa, thank you so much. What a great conversation. I love, talking, so, about, I love talking about cultural studies. Do you? It's, I think it's important. Like I can say it's yeah. something that we consume on a daily basis, but yeah. we consume the end product, like you said at the start. Yeah. Rawa. But it's trying to understand the bits in between. And I think that's where, I think in general, we've been pretty bad, right? Yeah, in yeah, terms yeah. Of stuff. Rawa, thank you so much for joining us. Um, listeners, thank you so much. Patrons, got another episode for you now over on the Patreon. Um, and we'll see you again next week. See you next week. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 